Welcome in to another edition of the All Things Bama podcast powered by BamaCentral.com, your Sports Illustrated and Fan Nation affiliate for all Alabama Crimson Tide news. I'm your host, Tyler Martin, and I'm joined with two Bama Central staff writers today. Uh, the, the newest one, Tony Sukalis, and then Katie Windham as well. Uh, guys, we're doing something a little new here. Uh, you know, we're trying to get more people involved with this. We have some people contributing to the site. So instead of just really one you know, on each episode, I'm trying to branch out and make it two, maybe even three. So I'm glad you both are on here. We're going to dive into, you know, some recruiting as it just wrapped up. the uh, Officially, the 2022 cycle, um, the, the heavy lifting has been done for the most part. Uh, some Alabama basketball and then some off the field um, things that are going on with the Crimson Tide football program. But, but glad you both are on here. Yeah, yeah. Happy to be on, Tyler. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it's been a minute for me, you know, obviously going out of the country, getting married, honeymoon, it was great and all, but it's trying to, you know, get caught up and get refreshed on everything that's going on because, Katie, it seems like, you know, this offseason for Alabama already, I mean, it seems like something's going on every single day. I mean, on Thursday afternoon, the announcement, uh, you know, plans are moving forward with the new basketball arena. The same day, Pete Golding, you know, Alabama's defense coordinator gets a DUI. It seems like this offseason already has just been kind of crazy. Yeah, it hasn't really been a slow uh, offseason so far for the beat writers between, um, you know, all, yeah, the stuff you just mentioned, the crazy news this week, plus all the recruiting stuff with National Signing Day being yesterday. Even though National Signing Day has kind of lost a little bit of its luster with that early signing day back in December. Um, and then, you know, we got basketball going on in Tuscaloosa, too. So it, it's not been a, a slow offseason so far, and it's just going to continue to pick up steam as – uh, we're finishing off these winter sports and then literally the spring sports baseball and softball start uh, within the next two weeks. So, and we haven't even spoke about maybe the impending Bill O'Brien stuff that could happen. I mean, I could throw a whole different wrench into all this and maybe Alabama is going to be looking for an offensive coordinator, perhaps I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that could happen. Um, and it's really kind of late in the game now to, to go find another replacement, especially for a position that big. So um, I know there's a lot of Alabama fans hoping that, you know, Bill O'Brien leaves, but I'm not sure that's the best thing for Alabama. Yeah, right after you, you know, just have signed all these recruits and even last Saturday at the Alabama Baylor basketball game, you know, they had kind of like a recruiting section right behind Press Row and Bill O'Brien and Pete Golding were both there with guys. And so, um, you know, now they're already signed, so it's not like guys are going to leave probably, but at this point it is, you know, how are you felt about Bill O'Brien's play calling last season? It's, it's a little late in the game to be switching out offensive coordinators. And you have such an important offense next year. I mean, you're returning a Heisman Trophy winner. You, you know, you have the possibility. You brought in Jermaine Burton, who, you know, I've heard great things about. Jameer Gibbs was the best running back in the portal. You want to have somebody – you don't want to throw a, a new guy with this offense if, if you can help it. So I think having an established guy, a familiar guy for a second straight year is going to help, you know, Bryce Young. It's also going to help kind of, you know, lead this offense, which I think could be really good. You know, something I was thinking about, and well, and this is a great place to start on this kind of the, some staff moves and things like that. Um, you know, if Bill O'Brien was to leave and the Patriots' job seems most likely the offensive coordinator replacing Josh McDaniels, who he replaced when Josh McDaniels took the Broncos' job, you know, so many years ago. Uh, you know, Alabama has so many analysts. You know, they obviously employ the the largest coaching staff in the country. You know, I've always just kind of wondered if, if it's this late, because this would be the latest kind of – coaching hire Nick Saban's really had to do on his staff, honestly, uh, would they just promote somebody from the inside? You know what I mean? Like, um, I, you know, the first name that comes to mind is a guy, Alex Mortensen, who's been there for so many years as an offensive analyst, you know, I wonder if, you know, Bill O'Brien did leave, if it would just be like, okay, it's maybe, maybe promote internally. What do you guys think about that? 
Mortensen would be an interesting one. Um, you know, he's basically like if Bill O'Brien was to be, if he had missed the the Cotton Bowl with COVID, uh, it was going to be Mortensen that was going to step up. He's kind of been like the quarterback whisperer kind of guy for Alabama. So if he wants somebody that, you know, knows the offense, I think that that would be, you know, a good a good option, but maybe also like a, a safety net if you don't get somebody else, at least you have a guy like that in-house that you could go turn to. I think Alabama, you look at what Nick Saban has done, it's going to be more probably like a more established guy than, than Mortensen, I would think. You, you, you've seen him take guys out of the NFL or somebody that's called an offense on a regular basis. I, I, I just, that would kind of surprise me just because, I mean, this is a huge job and I'm not saying that he couldn't handle it, but I think you can get more established names. I'm not saying even better maybe, but like just more established names. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I feel like it'd be a pretty big jump from being an analyst to the offensive coordinator at Alabama, um, you know, not even like being a position coach, which like I'm not saying it's not possible, but when you're going from an NFL head coach to position to someone who's never been technically an on-the-field coach, I feel like it'd be a pretty big jump. But I feel like he's a name I've heard a little bit about. Um, so, you know, maybe a name to look out for. But, of course, all this, you know, is still hypothetical right now. And if Bill O'Brien even takes the job, which by the time this video or podcast releases, he couldn't be somewhere else. You never know how fast these things can change. Yeah. And, and to, you know, you mentioned if it's going to be an easier jump, if it is promotion inside, you know, from a position to coordinate, you, know, you look at a guy, Holman Wiggins, who's been there for a few years now, too. Um, that's just that, that's just something I thought about. Um, but, you know, maybe hopefully, you know, Alabama might not have to go through another transition period like that. And they can retain uh, both coordinators and and Pete Golding. Let's talk about him for a second. You know, Thursday morning, getting a DUI. He, uh, he just released a statement as we're recording this, you know, talking about how he didn't uphold the values of the University of Alabama and, and all of that. And, um, and, you know, a lot of people were talking about him losing his job. Obviously, drinking and driving is terrible. It's irresponsible, especially with someone who has so much money. I mean, he's one of the highest paid coordinators in America. Like, it's it's dumb. It's stupid. Um, you know, he should there should be a punishment, but he's not getting fired, right? And um, and I was telling you guys before this that, um, I, you know, I, I thought Pete Golding in, in the 2022 recruiting class and even 2021 as well, he's been the guy. Like, he has been on it. He has been one of Saban's, like, ace recruiters on this staff. But you definitely hate to see the DUI. And uh, hopefully, you know, he can get that turned around. Yeah, you look, you've seen Nick Saban give second chances. And so this is going to be, you know, he's not a guy that likes to just throw people out. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some, some discipline. I'm sure there's going to be some talking and, you know, taking the right steps to help Pete Golding kind of get over this and, and, and learn from this and, and progress from this. Cause you know, I mean, who knows, maybe this is a problem. Um, I, I, I trust that, you know, the right measures are probably going to be take, taken into account there, but yeah, as far as the guy losing his job, I would be surprised if, if Alabama moves on from Pete Golding because of this, I would think it's more uh, a case of, you know, a harsh, you know, consequences in-house uh, stuff like that. Uh, maybe some requirements. Now, if he does, I mean, I think if you did see Pete Golding let go, it would probably signify something bigger than just this. I mean, you know, we don't necessarily know everything that's gone on behind the scenes, but if it's this, you know, one instance, or if it's something that Al Alabama and Nick Saban feels that, you know, Pete can grow off of, I, I think they're going to try to take that avenue. Yeah, I mean, Nick Saban did just speak really highly of Pete Golding yesterday during the National Signing Day press conference about his ability to develop relationships with players and how they all really like him and trust him. And so, um, yeah, you, I mean, you hate to see something like this. Um, and like Tony said, Nick Saban, you know, is, is pretty good to give people at second chances. I was talking with people earlier today. You know, I don't know if 
a situation like this has happened in the past with an assistant coach. Obviously, we've seen a lot of players through the years get arrested for DUI. And so it is a little more serious, you know, him being an adult and an employee at the university. Um, but uh, I don't expect any super drastic measures to be taken unless, like Tony said, there's more that comes out. Yeah, no, no doubt. And I, I completely agree with you guys. And, and too, just to kind of speak on Pete, I mean, I, I mentioned kind of the ace recruiter aspect of it, but Alabama landed four players from Louisiana this cycle. And, and one I want to touch on, you know, is Danny Lewis, one who just they just added on National Signing Day, which it has lost its luster. And I hate that. And I wish the recruiting calendars could change. I, I, I mean, I, I hate the early signing period now. I don't know about how you guys feel about that. But the early signing period to me just just takes away the drama, it takes away just kind of the, the, the allure of what this day meant to so many people across the country. And, uh, and Danny Lewis, a tight end who was originally committed to Cincinnati, decommits late uh, last month in, in January, and then really picks up steam. And Brian Kelly's dance moves, I know you talked about him a lot, Tony. Um, they, they didn't win him over. But I think it's interesting about this um, is the fact that, okay, this was really Brian Kelly and Nick Saban's first head-to-head recruiting battle since Kelly's gotten to Baton Rouge. And, it is. Yeah. And he failed. And, and, and Kelly failed in that aspect because you've got a guy already in your backyard and you, and you guys were already – you guys offered before Alabama did and you're trying to build the relationships. You do the viral dancing and it didn't work out. You, you, you fell flat on your face. Yeah, I mean, look, I, both teams needed a tight end as well. That's a huge part of this too. I mean, Alabama, after seeing Jaleel Skinner leave, they were kind of – looking for that more complete tight end. I mean, uh, I think Amari in the black is going to be a, a really good tight end. I expect him to be the best or most talented of the three that they brought in. But Danny Lewis was a real knee. We talked about on the, on the site today of just Alabama needed that complete tight end. And they were trying to look in the portal and they, they couldn't, they couldn't get it in the portal. There's not an option currently available in the portal that kind of fits that need. So it was a big thing for both Alabama and LSU to, at the tight end position and Alabama was able to pull that through. And um, I think we're going to see, obviously, like you said, a lot of battles between Nick Saban and Brian Kelly. Um, I, I know Brian Kelly can recruit and say what you want about the dancing. I'm sure that that sells to certain recruits as well. And, and so like, that's, it's goofy and it's, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd like it if I was a recruit, but there's, there's a reason why they're doing that. And like what Nick Saban said is, you know, everybody, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? So um, if it's working, he'll continue to do that. But it's hard to go head to head with Nick Saban. And I think, we, you know, we saw that, you know, we saw that Alabama was able to kind of flex its muscle in, in a position of need and, and get, uh, you know, I, I know it's a, not the most high profile recruit, but it's definitely one that Alabama needed. So, I mean, like throw out stars or rankings. I mean, yeah. like Alabama really wanted this person. LSU really wanted this person. Florida really wanted this person and Alabama got it. So that, that just shows you, you know, Pete Golding, Nick Saban, the, the recruiting prowess that they had, that they went and offered a kid late and, and, and got him. Yeah. And you made a great point about it, Tony. I, I, and no disrespect to, I, I mean, rankings are all subjective, right? And, and no, no, no offense. Like, Danny Lewis isn't some top tier prospect coming out of high school, right? I mean, he's, he's looked at as a developmental piece, a guy who down the road can really make an impact. Right. And so, you know, this wasn't, you know, a, a five-star kid who was in LSU's backyard who they missed on. I mean, it was, it was a kid who, who deep down should have probably ended up at LSU um, at, at the end of the day, but, but, but there was other plans. Another thing I want to hit on guys, Alabama finishes number two behind A&M. 
So Jimbo Fisher goes off, right? I mean, he's sitting there, uh, you know, saying, oh, since these, these comments about, you know, a and paid for their recruiting class, they're insensitive, they're insulting to all this hard work that has been put forth by his staff. Um, and, and Katie, I don't know about you, but when I was listening to Jimbo Fisher, if, if you really think, okay, you, this is your fifth recruiting class at A&M, you signed seven five-stars, you hadn't signed more than three in any other class, right, and you only have an eight and four season, and you, somehow you still end up with seven, and NIL gets introduced in the first full cycle, you get seven, something's a little fishy, and then by the way he was acting in the press conference, rather than just saying, hey, you know, boasting about, hey, this is what we did, this is what, you know, hard work we put into it, it was more so of, let me just try to, let me try to just defend, 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 right, and, and that, to me, that that puts off a kind of some guilt. I don't know. I, I'm going to step in. I, I don't know if that's the case. I think he's probably, at least this is the first time that AM's won a top recruiting class, and he has to now hear about NIL. And look, I think that the point that Jimbo Fisher was trying to make, now, did he handle it the best? Probably not. But the point he's trying to make is, you know, everyone has these same rules. We're not doing anything that different than anybody else is doing. And, uh, you know, we, we just did something that's big for the program is, you know, let us celebrate the way that, you know, you would with Alabama. And, and to be honest with you, Al Texas A&M had this, this really good class, but so did Georgia and so did Alabama. And even if they did get an advantage of NIL, the difference between A&M's class and the difference between Alabama's class or the difference between Georgia's class is very minuscule. It's not going to be the difference in the Aggies winning over the Bulldogs or over the Crimson Tide. Like, it's just, you know, there's three elite classes, in my opinion, in this in this recruiting cycle. And, you know, so that the A&M had the most five stars, but, you know, only 11 people are allowed on the field. And in today's yeah. in today's climate, you know, I mean, like, are all those people going to play? And if they don't play right away, are they going to transfer? That's same, the same thing with Alabama and Georgia is I think you're going to start seeing less patience uh, among some of these players. So it's not just about bringing in, you know five stars and it's not just about nil i mean look i also i think when you're evaluating these classes let's not also forget that alabama brought in jermaine burton and eli ricks and jameer gibbs and three of the best transfers in the portal that almost has to be considered now into recruiting because that's going to happen every single year yeah. so I, I know that there's a lot of concern about texas a&m and whether or not you know the nil is going to change college football if it does and that's an advantage that texas a&m can kind of take advantage of i, I don't think it's going to go out of control i think there'll be re uh, regulations placed on on nil after a while once we get more of a feel of it and i don't think that you know it's going to ruin the sport like i think a lot of people are, are worried it's going to and and i don't necessarily think a&m's doing anything wrong or the that they're really getting that much of an advantage i, I don't you know, and before before you say something, Katie, I do want to rebuttal. Like so, like no, I I do agree. Like I don't think A and M is doing anything wrong at all, right? Because you go back and look at Jimbo's comments on Feinbaum two months ago, right? He was saying the NIL is just it's above the table, right, rather than underneath the table. And then when two months later, when you come back and then you say, oh well, we weren't doing that, right? But then you were saying, okay, it's above the table. Let's, I mean, they're all dealing with the same, they're the same things, right? All these coaches, they're dealing with new stress. That's why this offseason feels so dramatic and all of this now, right? Because there's just new things popping up each and every day. Um, and you know, it's one of the things, you know, with Sal Sinceri moving over to special assistant to the head coach, right? Because Coach Saban talked about how, you know, it's all dealing with all the new things that this game presents, right? As it evolves, um, he's going to help out in that area. I, I just think, too, yeah, I don't have an issue with what AM did or 
or at what they're alleged to do at all. Um, I, I do think what it correlates to is this now that A&M is next in line, right. To win a national championship eventually, because Georgia did it this year. Right. And they had a number one class and they were kind of that class. Okay. They were kind of known as, okay, well, they can't get it done. They can recruit at an elite level, but they couldn't get it done. Now you look at the last number one classes, right. It was Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, all these teams have won uh, number one classes, and they've also won national titles. So we'll see if A&M can do that. W- what do you have to say, Katie? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can go or look at the, all the stuff yesterday or the last two days, really, between Jimbo and Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban and their comments about NIL and recruiting. Um, but kind of, Tony, your point about, like, if, you know, for A&M, does it give them that much of an advantage or can it with NIL? Like, if there is an advantage in recruiting with NIL, like, Alabama can use that as well. Like, Alabama has a lot of money. Like, Nick Saban has the power and influence. Like, Alabama fans, if you're worried about, like, A&M, like, Alabama could – I mean, there's not maybe as much money in Alabama as there is at A&M, but, like, there's still enough that they can get the people that they want. Um, and so, however this shakes out, I think it's really just a lot of coaches now, especially Saban, what some form of, of – legislation or I mean Saban was saying yesterday that he doesn't want NIL to be a reason that someone goes to a school but if that starts becoming the reason that people go to school to certain schools then they'll start using that to recruit them and so um you know Saban's little or you know people say ABC always be recruiting and I think we saw a lot of that from him yesterday even with going back to Danny Lewis when he was talking about him saying and you'll talk about the battles with Brian Kelly that are going to come up in the future. Saban's little comment about he loves the people in South Louisiana. They're so nice. You know, he, he's a master at what he does. I mean, we all know this. We've all seen it. Um, the reason, there's a reason why he's won more national championships than anyone else. But also, you know, Tyler, what you're saying is a really good point. I think you're bringing up about we've seen the schools that have gotten the top recruiting class and how eventually it can translate to national championships. And so um, we'll see if Jimbo is able to do the same thing at A&M. Katie, on that point. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you. There is. Look, NIL is kind of a a gray area, right? And so there, there are, it's kind of the wild west right now until people know more about it, until you can kind of like make more case studies about what's going on. It's hard to put these rules in place. There's still feelers going on, but Nick Saban's going to be able to adapt. Consider it, you know, driving, right? If you're, if you're speeding and you're going under 10 miles an hour, chances are you're not going to, to get pulled over. You know, now I feel like with NIL, you're maybe you're moving on to the highway, right? So maybe now you can go 15 over. Maybe you can go 17 over. Now, if you get caught or if you go out of control, that the penalty is going to be a lot higher, but there's still that gray zone. And people like Nick Saban, like Jimbo Fisher, like Brian Kelly, they're going to be able to navigate and know what they can do and what they can't do. And until, you know, the regulations get a little bit more strict, I think you're just going to have people maybe bend it here and bend it there. But don't, don't kid yourself. It's not just going to be Jimbo and it's not just going to be, you know, Nick Saban or Lane Kiffin or like everyone's going to be doing that. It's just, I think with NIL until he gets things, you know, kind of more of an understanding that gray area, that, that ability that you're kind of able to speed is going to be greater. Um, And it's just going to be a little bit of a shady gray area, but I I don't think anything's going to get out of control. It's just, you know, I think it's like, like like what you said is you want to have an experienced coach like Nick Saban that knows what he's doing. Uh, to keep things, you know, above board, but also make sure that he doesn't um, go too far or, you know, break it, you know, a rule that's going to get Alabama in trouble. And I, I think you've seen he, he's been able to take advantage of any kind of situation or any change in college football. He's been able to persevere. Yeah, we definitely need uniform legislation, right, from a federal level on this. 
Um, and, and these spats that we're seeing now in the media, um, which I, Kiffin's comment I found hilarious, you know, about how A&M and Texas need to probably be paying a luxury tax like an NFL team does. Um, I found that really comical, right? I found, I mean, that, like, all these little jabs, I mean, it, you can just tell, like, so, I mean, including this season, I mean, it is going to really ramp up um, on the field. And, and now, you know, these guys, I know they're cordial with one another um, in the media and stuff like that, but you can just kind of tell. I mean, it's it's really starting to get um, in your face. And I love it, right? I love the drum. I mean, this is this is what, we, which, what makes college football so much fun when we have coaches calling out one another um, uh, in, in the media. But real quick, before we get on basketball, I do want to hit one more thing on football. The transfers. I'm glad you brought them up, Tony, because because the last time before we did a last podcast, Jermaine Burton now is a member of the Alabama Crimson Tide. I'm glad you mentioned him. I saw a lot of hot takes. I don't even know if you can call it hot, but I saw a lot of takes about okay, could he be what Jamison Williams was to this team uh, in in 2021, right in 2022? Uh, what do you guys think about the addition of getting him, you know, from Georgia? Uh, and who do you think is going to be the most important transfer out of these three with Gibbs, Ricks, and Burton? Most important is interesting because I don't necessarily know if it's going to be the best. But I think if I went most important, I go Eli Ricks. Who could end up being the best too, but you need that starting role. And I think they really needed some experience, especially with losing two starters and Josh Job and, and Jalen Armour Davis. Now, I know they pretty much return a starter with Kool-Aid McKinstry because he's had so much experience, but I don't think you want to go too young and inexperienced. So probably most important, I would go Eli Ricks, but best, I think I'd go Jameer Gibbs. I mean, um, nobody on Alabama is winning the Heisman this year. Um, I think it's just, you know, with, with Bryce Young, I think he'd be competing against himself. It's hard to win the Heisman two years in a row. And then you're not going to have somebody not named Bryce Young on Alabama's offense win the Heisman. But I yeah, think defense, on a normal though. year for Alabama that like, you know, without this, you know, kind of elite quarterback that, they, that they've had in the recent years, a guy like Jameer Gibbs would be somebody that you'd put in that Heisman mix. I think he's got super talent. Um, he's a guy that can, you know, um, contribute in all parts of the game as a receiver. He was the highest graded, um, he was the highest graded uh, running back uh, receiving grade uh, from pro football focus. Um, he's obviously a good running back. Um, you know, I really like him. I think he's going to be the starter at running back. And I, I know that Alabama is going to spread it out, but I wouldn't be surprised if he gets the majority of the carries next year. Uh, and then Burton, I think, gives experience to a young receiving room. And I put him third on this list, but I mean, that's even that, you know, he's still going to be a very important part, probably end up being Alabama's leading receiver. So all three of them are very crucial, in my opinion. Yeah. To, well, first to counter your point about no Heisman, I think you're giving a little disrespect to Will Anderson there because I think it'll be really hard for an Alabama player to win it three years in a row. But That's I agree. Another thing, yeah. I agree with no one else on offense probably could win um, besides Bryce. And I was originally going to say Gibbs is the most important because you know if you're losing your leading rusher and B Rob, and then you're going to have other people coming back from injuries. So you just don't really know where they're going to be at. You already lost Kamar Wheaton and you know Trey Sanders. Um, you know who, who knows what he'll do. But then really, I mean, it's all three of those positions. Like you're saying, I mean, you laid out the case for Ricks and then really Burton too. You know, you you lost all your your, your top three receivers. And so, I mean, that's the reason why I say we went and got these guys out of the portal. They were all meeting positions of need um, that are, you know, lacking a little bit of experience or lost a lot of experience from this year's team. And so um, I think all three will step into those roles and be big additions for this team. Yeah. Most important, it's really close between Burton and Ricks. I'll go Burton just because you guys said, uh, <laughs> uh, you, because you got, you well, you said Gibbs and you said, uh, 
and you were talking about Rick's Tony, but I, you know, for me with Jermaine Burton, right. I mean, we saw in the national championship game, what the Alabama offense, I mean, obviously very young, some guys really had to step up a Jai hall. You know, there were some drops, um, Ja'Cory Brooks, we saw what he could do right in the iron bowl. We saw it in, in um, in the Cincinnati game as well. Um, but for Jermaine Burton, a guy who, you know, coming over, you look at his numbers, I mean, 400 yards is Georgia's leading receiver. I know Brock Bowers was technically their leading receiver, but in terms of wide receivers, it, Jermaine Burton was the guy. Um, and, and kind of just what he provides, I mean, as, as a guy who has some speed, he has some physicality to him. Um, I think in that room, he's so important. Last year, I thought coming into it, Alabama's wide receiver room as a whole was maybe not inexperienced, but they were unproven outside of John Mechie, right? Like everyone was talking about Slade Bolden being that guy. And sure, Slade, Slade Bolden had some nice moments in, in this past season and kind of and back in the 2020 national championship year, but they were unproven, right, for the most part. This year, when you look at that, I mean, that wide receiver room is depleted, absolutely depleted. Um, and, and, and maybe, you know, Slade Bolden, maybe he'll see that, you know, he maybe should have stayed potentially. Um, but anyway, I think Jermaine Burton is the guy who is going to provide, I guess, uh, or be the most valuable transfer um, this cycle. Moving on to basketball, Alabama coming off of a 100 to 81 loss against Auburn inside Auburn Arena on Tuesday night. Uh, tough scene there. Uh, you know, Alabama's got Kentucky right there. They're finishing this three game stretch, which is absolutely brutal. I've looked at a lot of other teams, top team schedules in the country, and I haven't found a, uh, a tougher stretch than this one, right? Number four, Baylor, number one, Auburn, number five, Kentucky. This is as hard as it gets. Now, Alabama, if you would have told me Alabama gets two out of three, I, I mean, that's that to me right there is just a win in itself. Um, so what, what do you guys take away from Tuesday night going into Saturday? Tuesday, I was down in Auburn Arena along with one of our interns, Blake, and, you know, Alabama came out of the gate strong in that game at the at the under-16 um, timeout. You know, they played really good defense those first four minutes. It was intense. They weren't maybe converting shots on the other end, and then they kind of held a lead um, for the first part of the game, and then, you know, all of a sudden you blink and Auburn's up do double digits. Um, they got up by 19 in that first half, and then Alabama made some threes right before the half to cut it down to um, – like 11, I think. Um, and then, you know, out of the half, they come out hot again. Uh, JQ and Shaq are just hitting shots left and right. They cut the lead down to two. And then you blink and Auburn's up double digits again. So, I mean, I think part of that was just showing how good of a team Auburn is. Alabama cannot compare to them depth-wise. You know, when Auburn goes to the bench, there's not really a huge drop-off uh, when Alabama does. Um, there is, and even probably all five Alabama starters aren't necessarily on the same level as Auburn's. Um, but... I think there were some good things to take away from that game. You know, Nate Oates in the postgame was really proud of um, the starting five and how they competed in the first and second half. I think it was good for them to see some three-point shots finally start falling um, at a higher level, even though, um, you know, ultimately it was still not even anywhere close to enough against Auburn. Um, but also think there's some guys that are going to want to, particularly J.D. Davison, that didn't have a great game, that are going to want to prove something on Saturday against Kentucky. And, um, you know, as we've seen this year, these are the type of games the Alabama team normally competes best in. And so um, I think it'll be a, you know, a great environment for basketball on Saturday, a packed out Coleman Coliseum and an energized team that's uh, ready to go on Saturday. Yeah, I think about this Alabama basketball team when I look at it is that it's got some serious holes that I just don't know how it's going to come. You know, um, it's a team that on it today can shoot lights out and that's how they beat Gonzaga. Um 
But on the same hand, you look at this Auburn game, I mean, Alabama doesn't have a post presence. You know, I think Charles Bediaco is a talented kid, and I think he's going to be better, but he needs to put on some weight. He's got to be more of a presence. You can't, you know, and then there's nobody really after him that can that can help. So, I mean, if he's not doing it, who are you going to have as that that post presence? Gurley is more of an outside guy. You've got Jawan Gary who can kind of put in a shift, but, I mean, he's small when you come talking about having a big guy. I mean, um, Alex Chico, it seems like Alabama kind of, you know, isn't believing in him for, for whatever reason, and he, he didn't seem to work out. Um, Keon Ambrose Hilton hasn't really done anything since coming here, so they don't have the bigs. Uh, and, you know, while I think Charles Bediaco has a future, I don't necessarily think in the next couple of months he's just going to change his game. So it's going to – Alabama's going to have to rely even more on the outside shot, and, and they're not – that dependable there either i mean on their day they can shoot lights out but you know you look at uh, javon quinterly he can be hot and cold i think you know you get a different keon ellis i mean when when keon ellis is on then yeah you can almost kind of like forget about herb jones like you, you're getting that kind of defensive player and then he's actually you know he can hit some threes himself and provide some offense but when keon ellis, it's, it, there's like two different keon ellis's and when you get the bad one you know, it's a huge liability. And, and, and there's a lot, you could say the same thing about Javon Quinterly this season. And it, it's funny. I think, you know, from what I've seen from Alabama fans, uh, the, the critiques have been all on uh, Jaden Shackelford, man, if you take Jaden Shackelford out of this team, I, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure it's going to the tournament. Like I, I'm serious. I think if you took him out, I've heard, you know, I don't know if it's just overreacting Alabama fans are, if they actually feel this way, but I've heard, you know, a couple of times, you know, Oh man, I wish he wouldn't have came back. If he didn't come back, you can kiss the the, the tournament goodbye. I mean, I don't, I, where would this team be without Jaden Shackelford? And I think they're going to have to rely on him. And I think you're just going to need more consistency from Javon Quinterly and, and Keon Ellis. And then you're just going to have to hope that you can get by without having a post game because even with the development of Charles Bediaco, I don't know if that's going to be enough. So you're going to have to play to your strengths there, but you're also going to need more consistency in what you are strong at. Yeah, and it's all going to come down to the matchups when we get into March, and, and you guys know that. But, yeah, Tony, you make some great points about the post-presence. I mean, Charles Bediaco, I thought at the beginning of the year, right, when, when Angry Chuck was coming alive, when he was protecting the rim, I, I thought he was playing really good basketball. I thought the first four minutes of the game against Auburn when Alabama cut it from 16 to 2, I thought that was his best four minutes of the season and Javon Quinley's best four minutes of the season right there. And that little spurt that got them back into that game. Um, because Chuck was playing angry. He was, uh, you know, he was attacking the rim because a lot of times he just looks timid to me. He just looks like he, he's scared. Um, and we'll see what happens on Saturday because Kentucky's a team with Oscar Shibway, who he's a rebounding freak. He's a rebounding monster. Uh, he can block shots. Uh, Alabama's going to be in trouble if, if they can't, if they can't attack him or get him in foul trouble early um, because they're going to need to, they're going to need to get him out of the game some way or some, some form or fashion. But, yeah, Charles Bediaco, to me, uh, is, is a guy that for Alabama to depend – you know, it's ceiling and floor. It really depended on Charles Bediaco, Jaden Shackelford, and Keon Ellis, in my opinion. We know what we're going to get out of Javon Quinterly um, because I think now he's really turned it on over the last two weeks. He's really begun to really figure out again what he was last year. He's been that engine. Um, but, again, Keon Ellis, you got to give Alabama something offensively because I, I don't think you can ever question defensively what he brings. But offensively, you've got it. You've got to bring something to the table um, each night. And you go look at the numbers. Outside of the two threes he hit late in the Auburn game, he was like he was like one for nine, one for ten. 
Um, so, uh, and I get Auburn Arena is a very, very tough place to play. I don't think really any realistic Alabama fan thought that Alabama was going to go in there and win, right? But I think now that we look at this team, we, we kind of took for granted how good last year's team was, right? There was 10 games where they shot over 40% from three last year. Alabama's done that one time this year, one time. And I think we're seeing regression. I think we're, I think we're seeing a lot of things. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, this team, again, it, it's just you only have four or five contributors from last year here. So there is a lot of inexperience, right? But um, playing in those big games this year, playing in this tough stretch of games, and the atmosphere will be electric on Saturday night. Um, I wasn't able to be, you know, for the game in, in, in Coleman against Baylor, um, but I heard, obviously, great things you could tell on TV. I mean, it was just – you could hear Coleman off the TV, and it sounded excellent. Um, but Kentucky will be exciting. But, yeah, for Alabama fans, I would be really worried about Oscar Shibway and Kentucky's guards because um, they provide a nightmare. If they play how they played against Kansas, I, I don't see anybody beating them. It's kind of interesting when you look at this Alabama team. And, you know, we were talking about the inside presence and they need that. But this team, the, the, the additions they have, and Charles Bediaco and J.D. Davison are, are great players. And they're players you want on your team. They're not Nate Oates players. And that's, I think, they're, they're guys that you have to recruit. But I, I think the guys you brought in aren't necessarily they're, – they're so talented. And if you get a chance to add them, you have to add them. And you'll make them your players, right? But not but the best like, for his Davison, What? But you're saying, like, not necessarily the best for his They're sister. not, like – you don't look at J.D. Davison and say, man, that is a NATO player. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's going to help to have him. But I think this team almost has like an identity crisis because they lost a lot of like what they need in NATO's system from last year. And then you're having young guys who don't necessarily fit that system that need to learn that system. I'm not saying that this is not me saying that JD Davison was a mistake or that he doesn't belong at Alabama. It's just me saying that like it is making this product process harder because he's not, they, they need more shooters. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they, yeah. They need more of that guy. I think, you know, when we look at this team, I think you're really hurt that, that Primo left, you know, maybe that was an unexpected thing and, and good for Josh Primo. I mean, yeah. uh, to become a lottery pick and in the long run that helps Alabama. But I think when you're building this team and, and the way Alabama went about things, it's hard to imagine that they didn't expect to have Josh Primo and how much would that have changed the way that they're able to do things. And so when you're looking at that and, you know, I, I just think that, you know, next year, I think you're going to see more of an addition of like Nate Oates style players. And I think that's going to allow JD Davison with a second year in the program, unless he decides to go pro too. He's still but, getting locked in the first round. Yeah. He's still going to be a first round pick. It depends on if he, you know, feels like he can better his status. Maybe he's just a one and done guy. And if so good for him as well, but even if he comes back, I think you're going to see a different JD Davison, a more evolved, and then I think you're going to just see, you know, things click more for this, this NATO team. And, and while talented and while it can beat everyone, I think part of the struggles is it's just not built the way that you would envision a, a NATO team being built. And so they're trying to overcome that. And I still think this team, you know, I know it's early or I know it's late in the season, but it's still to a certain extent learning itself and learning how to make things work, you know? And so be interesting to see if they all click it together i mean look if this stuff happens right i mean i don't expect charles bediaco to just totally evolutionize his game in the next couple months nor do i expect you know jd davison to do the same um if they do start to click more we've see, already seen how dangerous this Alabama team can be like they could be a really buzzsaw come march 
they can beat anybody or they can lose to anybody in the country. And they'll have a shot again at number five, Kentucky, Saturday night in Coleman Coliseum, 7 p.m. tip on ESPN. Um, Alabama 14 and eight on the year, projected around a five to six seed right now by Joe Lenardi. Lastly, before we get out of here, uh, Alabama announces a new basketball arena. How exciting. Uh, it's everything that everybody's wanted, right? The, the, the seat, the student seats are close to the court. Um, it's less than 15,000. It's roughly sitting around uh, 10,100 seats. Um, so that, that's exciting from that angle. Um, it looks beautiful from the renderings online. Uh, it's going to be on, you know, it, it's, and you're not going to feel so far away from, from the action, right? Uh, golf is also getting a new facility, which looks fantastic. Good for them as well. But, but the basketball was definitely much needed. Um, and it's just going to accelerate the growth of the sport in this, in this, in this sport, in this state and, uh, and definitely boost Alabama basketball. Katie, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah. Just today during the board meeting, Greg Byrne was saying they had looked around the SEC and around the country and realized Coleman was in the bottom third, bottom third of the SEC basketball arena wise. And, the initial plans, you know, were just to renovate it, but they've decided it's best to rebuild. And I think most people would agree with that. And like you said, it's kind of everything um, Alabama fans have been wanting. I think maybe it's a little smaller than some what some people would want, but I think ultimately it'll be best in the long run and um, will be a big help for um, them recruiting wise and, you know, fan engagement wise, being able to have that type of new arena. It's also just beautiful, right? I mean, like you see the renderings and it's just like, it looks really cool. And if I'm a player, I, I'd want to play in that. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, it's a little more aesthetically pleasing and attractive to- You can, yeah, yeah. You can repurpose uh, Coleman and allow Nick Saban to, to park his uh, private jet there. That's probably more what Coleman looks like. Uh, this one looks beautiful. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, now let's we'll see what, the, I mean, let's we'll see what the renderings, you know, it, you know what it looks like when it's all built up but i i personally would be excited to go cover games in here and if i was a player i'd be excited to go play games in here um and it's going to help and it's also going to help keep a coach like nate oats around and you know i i really you know this season's been kind of a roller coaster for Alabama basketball but you, you can't you still can't look at nate oats and not think that he's building a monster at alabama basketball and, and with this stadium i think it's going to allow him to do that for sure, for sure. And you mentioned it earlier, Tony, the number three recruiting class coming into the nation. And you go look at those guys, Jaden Bradley, number one point guard in the country, Ryland Griffin. Those guys are putting up some points. Those guys are – all Americans. Yeah. And, and Nick Pringle, uh, he's the post presence you were talking about as well. Um, but thank you guys for coming on here. Uh, for Katie Windham and Tony Sukos, I'm Todd Martin. This has been another edition of the All Things Bama Podcast. <laughs> Thank you.